We're continuing our, our series in, in Zechariah. Um, this is the, the third one of this uh, this verse. We've only got two more to go. We're, we're whizzing through it. But um, last time uh, we looked at Zechariah 9, verses 11 to 13, and we saw that Zechariah was told what would happen to Judah in terms of who, what, and why. The who was the Lord. Repeatedly throughout those verses, the Lord said, I will. It was all about what the Lord would do. It was all about uh, him, not about anything they would do. What would he do? Well, we saw a whole series of things that he would do for them. He'd rescue them from, remember, the waterless pit. He'd lift them out from a hole that they were totally unable to free themselves from. Here this morning, weren't we, about our complete inability to save ourselves. Well, in picture language, that's what the water of this pit was all about. He'd restore them. He'd rescue them so that they could return to him as their fortress. And he promised that when they did so, uh, that, that he'd restore them double. He'd redeploy them. Having rescued and restored them, he would use them. They'd be as a weapon in his hand to bring about his purposes. He'd make them useful for him. Uh, he'd rouse them. Not, not only would he use them, but he, he would stir them so that they'd be involved and act willingly. Uh, in particular, that was a, a, a foretelling of uh, that the sons of Zion, their descendants, would be roused. They'd be roused against your sons, O Greece. And this was a, a remarkable foretelling of, of the Jewish rebellion against the Greek rule that would be led by Judas Maccabeus three centuries later. And finally, he'd revitalise them. The Lord said that he'd wield you like a warrior's sword. In other words, he'd so revitalise them as to make them powerful and, and victorious. And that's exactly what did happen uh, under Judas Maccabeus. But why would the Lord do all these things for Judah? They didn't deserve any of it. Um, we saw that the answer is given there in verse 11, where we read, because of the blood of my covenant with you. So now we come to verses 14 to 17, and it's clearly a continuation of what went before. It begins by saying, then the Lord will appear over them. Who will he appear over? When will he appear over them? Well, in the context, it must be referring to your sons, O Zion. It's referring to when the Lord would rouse them against the Greeks like a warrior's sword. So there's a continuity there. But there's also a marked change in style. Now, none of the commentators I've read have mentioned this. And I, I don't know if it's because none of them have noticed it or because they have noticed it and they don't think it matters very much. But it struck me uh, very forcibly. Back in verses 11 to 13, we kept reading I and you. But now in verses 14 to 17, we keep reading the Lord and them. As I said, in, in terms of the immediate context, we can understand them to be your sons, 
O Zion, who would be roused against your sons, O Greek, O Greece. But, but maybe it's also pointing even further forward into the future to an even greater fulfilment of what's being foretold. So as we read these verses, we need to ask ourselves if all of, of what we're told about them came to be true of the Jews when they defeated the Greeks, or whether there was uh, we need to look beyond that for, for something uh, that's more complete and, and, and a greater fulfilment. But why does the Lord stop using the personal pronoun I and start referring to himself as the Lord? Well, that leads us to something else that I um, that, that, that struck me quite forcibly and again something that uh, none of the, the commentators seem to mention but if you look more closely you find that the Lord doesn't keep referring to himself simply as the Lord he does at the beginning of verse 14 but then he goes on to say the Lord God or according to the NIV the sovereign Lord and then in verse 15, he says, the Lord of hosts, or according to the NIV, the Lord Almighty. Then in verse 16, both the SV and NIV say, the Lord their God. Now, I can't believe that that isn't significant, that, that he uses uh, these different descriptions of himself. Surely, it isn't just an attempt to provide a bit of literary variation it's not just a device to keep the reader interested. The Lord is deliberately using various terms and descriptions for himself to show us different things about himself. Why did he do that? Well, he'd just been telling them that, uh, what he would do for them and that it would be because of the blood of my covenant with you. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds great. But a covenant is only as good as the person who made it. So the Lord is emphasising what he's like. The different descriptions are showing some of his attributes. This is the one who made the covenant. This isn't just any covenant. This is a covenant that I made and this is what I'm like. So I will do these things. You can count on him to keep the covenant because this is what he's like. So we'll approach these few verses now uh, by now considering his attributes uh, as they're indicated by the, the designations he uses for himself. Next time we're going to look at the same verses again uh, and note his actions that, that spring from those attributes. And then the final week, we're going to look at the same verses again and consider his aims in carrying out those actions. In other words, we'll see his purposes or his objectives uh, that, that he's going to accomplish by means of those actions. So for tonight, the Lord's attributes. Uh, and from the ways in which he describes himself in, in these verses, we see four of his attributes. Firstly, he is eternal and unchanging. In our English translations, uh, verse 14 begins with uh, God referring to himself as the Lord, and that's the word that uh, translators use to denote Jehovah or, or Yahweh. 
and that's the name which God revealed uh, 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 revealed himself to, to, to Moses uh, we read about that in Exodus 3 14 to 15 God said to Moses I am who I am that, that's Yahweh, that's Jehovah and he said say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, Yahweh means something like, I am who I am. And I say something like, because the word actually has no tense. So it, it could also be, I will be what I was. Or I, I was what I am. Or I am what I will be. So this fascinating name tells us several things about God. Firstly, and most fundamentally, it tells us that God exists. I am tells us that he exists. It tells us that he is real. More than that, his revealed name also tells us that his self-existent, I am who I am, can equally be rendered as I am because I am. He's not derived from anyone else or from anything else. He doesn't depend on anyone or anything. His self-existent, his self-sufficient, what's more, his name also speaks of him being eternal. He was he is. He will be. He's above and beyond time. He had no beginning. He will have no end. He's eternal. His name also tells us that he's unchanging because uh, that name could be translated as I am what I was, so I will be what I am. Or I was what I will be. He's unchanging, forever the same. So, God who revealed his name to Moses is the one who's eternally, unchangeably <coughs> self-existent. And it's impossible for us to begin to comprehend, isn't it? It's, it's too amazing for our finite minds. You know, we're so used to being bound by time, bound by space. We're used to beginnings and ends. But that's what our God is like. He's the one who made the covenant with Abraham. The covenant was made by this one who is eternally, unchangeably self-existent. What's even more amazing is that the God who revealed his name to Moses has also revealed himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember how often in the Gospel accounts we read that Jesus used that expression, I am of himself. Perhaps the most powerful uh, of all is in John 8, verse 58, when he said to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. And that sounds like very bad grammar, doesn't it? The text goes on to tell us that they took up stones to kill him. And it wasn't because of his grammar. It was because they realised exactly what he was saying. They realised what he meant when he said before Abraham was I am. He was claiming to be Yahweh. He was claiming to be Jehovah. 
how could the near man standing before them possibly be the one who's eternally and unchangeably self-existent? But according to John chapter 1, he is the Word who in the beginning was with God and was God. The writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 13 verse 8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's eternally unchanging. He is Jehovah, Yahweh. Well, the next thing we see is that the Lord is the sovereign ruler. Continuing in verse 14, we see that the Lord refers to himself as the Lord God. Or according to the NIV, the sovereign Lord. Now, there are two Hebrew words being used there. One of them is Jehovah, not Jehovah, Jehovah, but that's just a, a, a variant of Jehovah, and it, it means the same thing. And the other word is Adonai. Now, Jehovah, or, or Jehovah, as we've already seen, uh, that, that, that means I am who I am. Um, strangely enough, the ESV has actually translated that as God, whereas normally it would be translated uh, as Lord. The NIV, I mean, as you'd expect, has translated it as, as Lord. So it's the word Adonai that's telling us something more about the Lord. Now, the ESV translates that as Lord, to just to confuse things even more, but the NIV has translated it as Sovereign. And it really speaks of the ruler to whom everything uh, is subject. It speaks of authority. It speaks of sovereign rights. So the Lord is not only eternally and unchangeably self-existent, he's also the ruler of the universe. He has authority over all things. And he's the one who made the covenant. It's also true that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler. Remember his words uh, to the eleven in Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the sovereign ruler. He is Jehovah. Now, of course, in earthly terms, a king might be a sovereign ruler with sovereign authority in principle, but if he's overthrown by someone, someone else perhaps is more powerful, then he's no longer to actually exercise any authority. Where's his sovereignty gone? Lots of sovereign rulers have been defeated or deposed throughout history. I'm just out of interest. I, I looked in Wikipedia to find out how many sovereign monarchs lost their thrones in the 20th century. Any guesses? This is worldwide. 145. 145 sovereign monarchs lost their thrones in the 20th century alone. Being an earthly sovereign ruler is a pretty precarious business, isn't it? However, it's not the case with God and his sovereign authority. Because the next thing we see about the Lord is that he is powerful. Verse 15 there, the Lord refers to himself as the Lord of hosts or the Lord Almighty. 
Now the word translated as Lord, you've guessed it, that is again Jehovah in both versions. Uh, The other Hebrew word here is Sabbath, from which we get uh, Sabaoth, which uh, occurs in Luther's famous hymn of safe stronghold, Our God is Still. Now, the version we sing has been modernised and so Sabaoth isn't there anymore. But uh, I well remember uh, often singing the Lord Sabaoth's song. And I don't know if you were like me, but I often thought, I wonder what that means. <laughs> but that's the word Sabaoth that was there uh, in, in Luther's hymn. And a literal translation would be hosts. So the Lord is here referring himself to himself as the Lord of hosts. In fact, that's the term that's used of him about 300 times in the Old Testament. 300 times the Lord of hosts, uh, especially in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Malachi. But what, do, what, what is, does it mean by that? What, what does it mean to say that he's the Lord of hosts? Now, after all, the word host, well, simply means a large number, doesn't it? Um, your words were famously spoke of a host of golden daffodils. But what sort of hosts does Yahweh have? Not, not just daffodils, only so daffodils as well. But large numbers of what are associated with the one who's eternal, unchangeable, self-existent and sovereign ruler. Well, how is the word host used in the Old Testament when it's not being used uh, in the expression the Lord of hosts? It's often used of armies, uh, as in the host of Israel, or the captain of Saul's host. Um, I, I could give you a reference, but I won't bother. Sometimes the word host refers to the stars in the sky. Um, once again, I, I won't bother with reading the references. The word host is also used to refer to the angelic beings. Uh, in 1 Kings 22, verse 19, we read, And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him, on his right hand and on his left. That sounds as though it could be, uh, this host could be a host of angels. Psalm 148, verses 1 to 2 is even more explicit in saying, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts. We see the same stated uh, again explicitly in Psalm 103, verses 20 to 21. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, who obey his voice. Uh, obey the voice of his word bless the Lord all his hosts his ministers who do his will so you notice that uh, his angels are said to be mighty ones who do his word they obey his voice and do his will so by the expression the Lord of hosts I think we're to understand that the one who's eternally self-existent and has authority over all things, is surrounded by myriads of angelic beings that form his spiritual army. They are the mighty ones who do his bidding and do his word. Uh, 
he not only has authority, he also wields great power. And it is he who made the covenant. No wonder Luther's hymn said, The Lord surveyeth son, he and no other one, shall conquer in the battle. Now you remember when Jesus was uh, being arrested and Peter pulled out a sword and sprang to his defence uh, and Jesus said in Matthew 26, 53 Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Now, the Lord of hosts could easily spare twelve legions of angels. The ESV makes it sound as though Jesus was saying that his father as the Lord of hosts, would simply send angels to his aid, send angels to help him. But I think the NIV is right in saying that Jesus said his father would put angels at my disposal. The Greek phrase means more than simply giving it. It has the idea of providing something for someone to use. He's putting something at someone's disposal. So had Jesus have made the call, which we know he didn't, but had he had cried out to his father, uh, the angels would have come and he would have been the one to command them. They would have done his bidding. Jesus, like his father, is the Lord of hosts. Again, we see that he is Jehovah. Well, having seen that the Lord is eternal and unchanging and the sovereign ruler and powerful, Next, and perhaps in some ways the most remarkable of all, we see that he is knowable. Verse 16, the Lord refers to himself as the Lord, their God. Both the ESV and NIV are the same there. Once again, the word translated as Lord is Jehovah, or Yahweh, and the other Hebrew word there is Elohim. And that's a word that is translated simply as God, small g, God. And it isn't only used of Jehovah, it's also used of, of idols and false gods. So, for example, in uh, Exodus 12, verse 12, um, the, the Lord said, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. God's there, that's Elohim, all the Elohim of Egypt. The gods of Egypt are spoken of as Elohim, so it doesn't speak specifically of the one true God, it really means the one or the ones considered by men to be their supreme deity or to be their, their deities. But you notice that the Lord went on to say, I am the Lord. In other words, he was distinguishing himself uh, from the gods of Egypt. He was saying, I'm not like those who are merely considered by men to be gods. I really am God, whether men recognise it or not. You remember how that distinction was so powerfully demonstrated on Mount Carmel when Elijah challenged, uh, challenged the prophets uh, of Baal. Elijah said in 1 Kings 18.24, You call upon the name of your God, small g, Elohim, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, Jehovah, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. 
And he was saying, you call on the one that you consider to be your God, your Elohim, and I'll call on the Lord because he's my Elohim. And of course it was the biggest mismatch imaginable. No contest. Because as we've been seeing, the Lord is real and has authority and power. The remarkable thing about this expression, the Lord their God, is that the Lord who is eternal, unchanging, and has absolute authority and power, can be known by men as their God. He can be called upon as their God. His deity doesn't depend on the recognition of men, but he's willing to be men's Elohim. He wants men to look to him as their God and call upon him as their God. Read in Exodus 3, 14 to 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You see, Yahweh was the Elohim of Abraham. And of Isaac, and of Jacob, they knew him as their God. But the fact that he had referred to himself as the Lord their God, shows him to be a personal God. I think it would be true to say that the, the message of the Bible could be said to be about the desire of Yahweh to be known as Elohim by men and the lengths to which he went to make that possible. Well, that's only possible because he's a gracious God who so loved the world that he sent his only son to shed his blood to seal the new covenant. You read uh, of Jesus in John 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is God the one and only and has made the Father known. Remember when Thomas saw the, the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he said, my Lord and my God. Well, may we each know him as my Lord and my God because in knowing him, we know Yahweh as Elohim. We know the eternally unchanging, self-existent, sovereign ruler as our personal God. Well, that's one look at those verses. We'll take a, a, a different angle next time.